Okay. Okay, let's uh, open with prayer. <clears throat> Lord, I thank you for all the rain and snow that we have Bless us abundantly. I thank you that you continue to provide the nourishment that we need for this land, but also for our souls. So you are the source of the pure and living water, water of life. I thank you now for the, the past study we've been doing on the priesthood as we draw to its conclusion, knowing that there is much more to say on the subject, but hopefully you will be glorified in what we have discussed and what we have learned as we go forward to bear the banner of your kingdom, your holy priest. And we pray. Amen. Okay, so we've obviously had a bit of a break since the last class, a little before Christmas. I can't remember when we started this. The end of September, I think. So it's been quite a few weeks um, discussing the priesthood, the priesthood of, of God as we traced it from its beginnings and to where it is now and, and in a very small amount to where it will be. So tonight, I just want to travel through that one more time as a summary and then open things up to questions and comments, anything of, of that nature. So there's nothing new in these notes. This is just sort of a condensation of the last eight classes or so of notes. So anything, everything that's in here for the most part, there's a couple of verses that, I, that were added, but almost everything else in here is already, if you have all the notes from previous classes, you have them all. So... Any questions before I begin to, to work through the priesthood from beginning to end in a, in a review fashion? Okay. So who were the first priests? Adam and Eve. And we know this through several ways. Uh, some of it is in the language that is used when... In Genesis, when God describes what they are to do, they are to be working and serving or working and keeping the garden. And, you know, sometimes I think we tend to think of that when we read it as, oh, they're supposed to be trimming branches and picking fruit and things of that nature. But what we find later is that that term, those terms, working and serving or working and keeping, are the same terms that are used throughout the rest of the Pentateuch and elsewhere to describe how the priests are to function in the tabernacle and the temple. They too are to be working and serving. And when we see that, we begin to see a lot of parallels in other ways that establish the fact that both Adam and Eve were priests. When the fall happens, it's it's not. I I would contend, and somebody can dispute me with with this if they want, 
that the sin happened not when Eve ate of the fruit, but really when they failed to prevent the serpent from coming in and deceiving them. Because in working and keeping or guarding, they did they guard the garden. No, they did not. So, then, you know, crept in because of their priestly failure. And because of that, they were then removed from the garden. And as we'll see later on, the garden itself is intended to be a temple, just as the tabernacle and the, the temple of Solomon are also temples. They are the place where humanity that is made in God's image dwells and works and serves in the presence of God. That's really what it is all about. And so we will see later on that just as Adam and Eve were the first priests, that the garden itself was the first temple, and the work that the priests do in the tabernacle in the temple will reflect the work that Adam and Eve were to do in the garden and what we are to do, be doing now. So once removed from the garden... The priesthood is disrupted. And we see Cain and Abel and Seth and Noah all doing priestly things, offering sacrifices, making blessings, calling on the name of the Lord. All of these things that we will later see are the specific domain of the priests. The, you know, when, we see, when we have the, the real prototypical priesthood that we see in the Levitical priesthood, we'll, we'll get to that. But then we see Abraham coming, and, and he, too, functions as a priest. And we see him doing many priestly things. We see him building altars, making sacrifices, and I think also very significantly, we see him interceding on behalf of people. The, the intercession on behalf of the people in Sodom is a very key passage because it's a priestly intercession. He is, he is modeling to us what Christ is going to do on a far greater level now, where Christ intercedes on our behalf before the Father. So that's one of the things a priest is supposed to do. But is Abraham the highest kind of priest? Who is? Who is the, the model for that highest kind of priest? Who does Abraham meet? No? Melchizedek. Jesus is the highest kind of priest. Everything else is looking towards what he is going to do. But Abraham is going to meet Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is the model of the kind of priest that Christ himself is going to be. So he is going to bless Abraham and teach him, and he is going to offer bread and wine. We will see that reflected. That's a whole different study on what the bread and wine that Melchizedek offers, how that looks forward to the Lord's Supper later on. 
And Melchizedek is going to teach Abraham about God. Now keep in mind, I mean, this is in chapter 14 of Genesis. When, what chapter does God call Abraham in? What? No. Sure, go for it. No. Leaven is the genealogy that, run, that connects from Noah to Abraham. So chapter 12 is when God calls Abraham. You have chapter 12. He calls Abraham. He leaves Ur. He goes, you know, travels to the land. Chapter 13, goes, you know, in 12, he goes down to Egypt. And then in 13, you have the battles between the, the kings of, you know, the armies of four kings versus five kings. So where in all of this has Abraham learned anything about who God is? He has followed and demonstrated faith, but he doesn't know anything about who God is yet. But Melchizedek teaches him. We see Melchizedek using the term El Elyon, God Most High. And you never see that term before Melchizedek uses it. But as soon as he meets Melchizedek, Abraham starts to declare his allegiance to El Elyon. He does so in chapter, at the end of chapter 14, before the king of Sodom. He says, I'm basically I'm paraphrasing. He says, oh, you know, I, I serve El Elyon. He learned that from Melchizedek, learning things about God. And then on that basis, on that righteous basis, God then makes the Abrahamic covenant with him in chapter 15. So one thing leads to the other. It's Melchizedek. And what does Melchizedek mean? What does it mean? I mean? What does his name mean? Now that he's king of Salem, which means king of peace, but his name itself means king of righteousness. And it's you know, so it's not by accident that he had that Abraham has this encounter, learns about God, and then God makes the covenant with him, and it's credit his faith is it says in fifteen six, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. You don't see terms like that appearing in proximity to one another without a good reason. So Melchizedek is modeling that high priestly capacity that Christ is ultimately going to expect. <clears throat> and on one level, Melchizedek has been kind of a mysterious figure because he, I mean, he's, he's only mentioned by name three times in the Bible. Genesis chapter 14. Does anyone want to guess the other two? Hebrews. In multiple places in Hebrews. So just, you can just say the book of Hebrews. And one other place mentioned by name. Psalm 110, which is a psalm of David. And that also has great significance. So... This figure that is in Hebrews is held up as the the forerunner, the model of the kind of priesthood that Christ is going to perfect. He's he's held up in into this high position, but he's kind of a mysterious figure. But when you really start to to take things apart and look for the markers, you see that there's actually more being said about Melchizedek, just you don't see his name in use. And so the next place where you really see 
something where we can learn more about that the type of priesthood that Melchizedek modeled is in Exodus, and specifically with Jethro. Who is Jethro? Say that again. Moses' father-in-law. And he is what? What is his position? Yes, of what? Midian. So like Melchizedek, he is not in the line of Abraham. He is, in effect, a Gentile or sort of a proto-Gentile, if you will, where he is still recognized as a priest and is, in effect, a priest of Yahweh. Now, how do we know that Jethro, already identified as a priest, is modeling the same kind of priesthood that Melchizedek is? Well, there's a lot of things that that connect them. But the order of events that occurs in Genesis is the same as the order of events that occurs in Exodus where you have, and I'm not going to give you all of the, the, the events here now, but suffice to say that, this, that the events of Genesis 12 through 15 model or, or are parallel to the events in Exodus, especially Exodus 11 through 19, where you have, you have Abraham goes down to Egypt, and then he comes out of Egypt, and he wins a miraculous battle you know he has you have the armies of four kings against the armies of five kings and lot gets captured and abraham seeks to free him and so how many guys does abraham take with him to fight these this battle to free lot 318 guys and yet this army that beat an arm an army of four kings that managed to beat an army of five kings abraham beats with 318 guys he rescues Lot. So the same way you have the, the Jews or the Hebrews coming out of Egypt, and what's the first thing they do on the other side? But they fight the Amalekites, and God grants them a miraculous victory. So you have coming out of Egypt, a miraculous victory, followed by an encounter with priests. So before it's Melchizedek, now Moses is encountering Jethro. And then Jethro offers a prayer and teaches Moses. And the same thing happens in Genesis where Melchizedek offers a prayer and teaches Abraham. So you have these parallels. You, the parallels are so undeniable, it's, it becomes apparent that Jethro is functioning in this same capacity. But there was another priesthood besides this one of Melchizedek that God had ordained. Does anyone remember what that was? It starts at Passover. It's the priesthood of the firstborn, where God says that the firstborn of Israel, each of the firstborn, will serve him. It's in Exodus 13. And they, they were originally what God had planned to be his priesthood, to, to represent the nation before him. But 
And when, when they first get to Sinai, we see this priesthood in effect as Moses goes up the mountain. So while Moses is up on the mountain, what, what happens? The what? The calf. And just, and, and the, so the calf really is a parallel to the sin in the garden where the, that firstborn priesthood, just as Adam and Eve were to work and serve or to work and guard the garden to prevent corruption from coming in, so too is the calf a failure to prevent corruption or sin from coming into the camp. Those firstborn priests, as brief as their tenure was, failed to keep corruption from coming into the camp. And, and I mean, how crazy is it that, you know, they've, they've crossed the Red Sea and Moses is up on the mountain and there's thunder and lightning and smoke and fire. And while God is giving Moses the law, while he's up there, the people are down below saying, we want another God. And who do they get to, to build it? But Aaron. And what does he say? He says, Behold, Israel, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. It's like, what a load of crock. But, load of crock. That was my last minute change from the, the one that had. But how different is that from what Adam and Eve did? You know, they were in the presence of God, and yet they let the serpent deceive them. You know, the sin is, is really, it's, it's the same sin. So, so the calf event in Exodus is really a parallel in a lot of ways to what happened in the garden. And unfortunately, it's just another one of many failures. And because of that, the firstborn priesthood is going to be rejected. But there was a section, there was a tribe that stood with Moses when he came down from the mountain. There was a a tribe that had separated themselves from the rest of the nation and had not gone over to the worship of the calf. What tribe was that? The Levites. The Levites stayed true. And because of that, God is going to call them to his service as a replacement to those that firstborn priesthood. And he, you know, it's not a pretty start either because he tells them, strap on your swords and wade into them and they have to kill all those who led the apostasy. Except for the one who really led it, who is Aaron. But, you know, Moses destroys the, the, the commandments, but he goes back up on the mountain and God is going to give him a second, give the nation, really, not Moses, but the nation a, a second chance. And he will give them the law again and he will establish a new priesthood. Not just, it's not the Levites themselves, though. Who, who really is, are the priests now? It's really the descendants of Aaron. Not if you're, it doesn't mean if you're a Levite, you're automatically a priest. The tribe of Levi 
is set apart, but they serve the priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood. So it's Aaron, his sons, and their descendants. They really are the priests, and the Levites serve them. So they guard, they pitch the tents, they prepare the sacrifices, but the priests are only the descendants of Aaron. So the Levites are serving the priesthood. I think a lot of times we just hear, you know, the Levitical priesthood and we just think all Levites are priests. That's not the case. It's really the descendants of Aaron. And why is that important? Because is this the priesthood God really intended? No, it's not. And Aaron himself has been, from, the, from day one, he has been a concession. He has not been God's ideal. How do we know this? What, what happens when Aaron first really enters onto the scene? Well, what does God tell Moses to do at the burning bush? Tells him, go talk to who? What? Pharaoh. And what's Moses' response? Yeah, nah. And then God says, go. And Moses says, well, you know, actually, I don't speak so well. And, you know, and they go back and forth. And what happens to Moses? It says God's wrath was kindled against him. That's not insignificant. And in his wrath, God finally says something to the effect of, fine, take Aaron with you. Let him talk. So Aaron, from the very beginning, is a concession by God and not God's, the fulfillment of God's perfect ideal. And so it stands to reason, and text explains this, that Aaron's priesthood is also a concession. And it's not the perfect ideal. And that's what the book of Hebrews is really driving at, is that the Aaronic priesthood was insufficient and imperfect. And that the priesthood that was at the beginning in Melchizedek, that's really the kind of working and serving that God has in mind. And that's it's in that capacity that Christ is the high priest. He transcends the concessive priesthood of Aaron. Does that make sense? He's above it. So Aaron's priesthood is always going to be less than perfect. Now that's not to say that they didn't do good things and that there weren't high priests that were good and faithful servants and who weren't zealous for the glory of God. There were good Aaronic priests. I think Aaron himself was kind of a muck but you know his he had several descendants who were who were good priests what's one that comes to mind Samuel Samuel was a good priest he was also an imperfect priest he a good father what no so you know, he was imperfect, but he was he was zealous for God, though he was faithful to God. So I I don't mean to malign all of the descendants of Aaron. They were good priests, but they are imperfect priests because their priesthood, by nature, is one of concession 
not one of perfection. So, <clears throat> we move on. Uh, so, there is one more significant development beyond the Levitical priesthood. And that is, does the, does the priesthood of Melchizedek just go away the whole time there is a Levitical priesthood? No. It's still there. I would contend that early on that Jethro passes it on to Moses. We see Moses doing a lot of priestly things, and he is not one of the Aaronic priests. But that's beside the point. Where we really see it come into clear focus is with David. And David himself really puts on that the mantle of, of the Melchizedekian priesthood. And we see him make radical changes in the religious life of the Hebrews. So how do we know David is functioning in the Melchizedekian priesthood? I mean, well, for one, he wrote the psalm that mentions Melchizedek by name. So we, under, we know that David knew of Melchizedek and was thinking about him. But what are some other things that we see going on in the life of David that would give us clues to this? King? Was Melchizedek a king? Yes. King of what? No. King of Salem. What is Salem? It's Jerusalem. And what's, what's David? Well, the timing is interesting. Because when Saul was king, did he reign in Jerusalem? No, he did not. He did not. I think it was in Gibeon that he, he reigned. But David becomes the king of the tribe of Judah, and he rules in what city? No. He becomes king. He rules for seven years out of the city of Hebron. And in the seventh year of his reign, he captures Jerusalem from the Jebusites, the Canaanites. And that's when you see significant changes. This is in 2 Kings. I'm sorry, 2 Samuel. All through 1 Samuel, you don't see this. 2 Samuel, king for seven years, captures Jerusalem, and all of a sudden, it is a sea change in the life, the religious life of the Hebrews. Why? Because now that he is the king of Jerusalem, Zedek was, David, well, you might say he makes some changes around. What does he do? What happens in chapter 6 of 2 Samuel? The famous event. He brings the ark into the city and takes it up to the high place of the city. You remember he takes his, his clothes off and he dances before the ark. 
as it's brought through the city in a procession by the priests? And what happens when he gets to the top? To the, when they get to the, what, what's waiting at the top of the city? A new tabernacle that David has built. Did the Levites build it? David built it. Who pitched it? David pitched it. He's, he is doing things that in Exodus and in Leviticus are specifically laid out as the domain of the Levites. And we also see him putting on the priestly clothing. So it's not by accident that all of these things happen after he establishes himself as king in Jerusalem, because that is where Melchizedek was king. So on what basis would you say, if you looked through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the law of, you know, the, which lays out the religious law of God's people, where in there does it say, and oh yeah, all of these things that, we, that God, I have just told you, you can dispense with, and the king can make it up as he goes along. But do the people reject what David does? They're just going right along with him. And it's because he's functioning in that priestly capacity. Is David a Levite? Is he a descendant of Aaron? On what basis is he functioning as a priest then? As after the order of Melchizedek. And he doesn't just do those things. As you read on, you get to chapter 7. You know, he's brought, brought the ark up, installed the ark into the tabernacle. He's offered sacrifices. Who offers sacrifices? That's what the priests do. David does it. And he's telling the priests what to do. And then, and it's like, I've read this so many times and it just never hit me. But once you see it, you can't unsee it. Chapter 7, that's where God makes the Davidic covenant with David. That's a really important covenant, is it not? Yes, it is. It's, it's an essential covenant for establishing. But what's David doing? When that's done, during the night, he goes into the tabernacle, into the Holy of Holies, and he sits down before the ark, and he and God are having a conversation. Who goes into the Holy of Holies? The high priest does once a year. That's the Aaronic priesthood. But now David's going in for a nighttime chat with God. I'm not trying to minimize it, but it's like, it's not the same thing. Why is he able to do this? On what basis? It's the same basis that Moses was able to do it in the tent of meeting where he goes in and he's sitting in the tent and just talking to God. I mean, they're having conversations in the presence of God. So it, it's really, really... It's a profound thing that David is doing. And in so doing, he, like Melchizedek, is really laying down 
the template for what Christ is going to do. Christ is prophet, priest, king. David is, you know, what David is called something that only he is called in all of the Bible. What is that? Say that again. He's a man after God's own heart. He's called that a few in a few places, Acts and a few other places where he is identified as a man after God's own heart. And David, as much as he is a sinner and did some pretty wretched stuff, he is establishing the template of what Christ will look like. He too is a prophet, a priest, and a king. I mean, the king is obvious. How do we know he's a prophet? There are few books in the Old Testament as prophetic as the Psalms are. The Psalms are deeply prophetic books. And who wrote most of the Psalms? David. So it's easy to overlook the fact that he is a prophet, but he really is truly a prophet. And as we have seen, he is also a priest. So he really is laying out the template for what Christ is going to do. What David is, even as grand as it is to be called a man after God's own heart, he is still a man and he is still a sinner. And Christ is going to be those things, but be them in perfection. Do we see other kings follow, of Israel and Judah following in David's footsteps in this priesthood? Absolutely, we do. So there are five things that, the, that we can see the kings of Israel and Judah, I mean the kings of the United Kingdom, the kings of Judah, let's just say the house of David, doing that are priestly in nature. They, they pray for their people. They bless their people. They offer sacrifices. They build altars. There's one other I can't remember. Call upon the name of the Lord. These are all priestly things. Where, and how do we know they're priestly? Well, like when you read Leviticus and when you read Exodus, in the law, these are things that priests are supposed to be doing. So all the good kings of in the house of David, we see doing at least one of these things. Some of the good kings do... More than one, three things, two things. Josiah and Solomon do four of the five. Who does five of the five? David and one other king. Hezekiah. So Hezekiah, I would contend, other than David, was the greatest of the kings in the house of David. And he does all five of those things. And I've Talked about it before, and I'll just take this as one last opportunity to mention it again, but his reinitiation of the Passover after the reign of his father Ahaz, who brought Baal worship into the temple, is such a profound and beautiful priestly expression. It is it is amazing. So I would I would encourage everyone to go read Second Chronicles eight uh, I think it's eighteen. My mind just went blank. 
So and it's and it it you know he's he's instructing the the priests on what to do. He's telling them how to do their job. Hezekiah, uh, sorry, it's Second Chronicles twenty nine and and thirty, but it's verse thirty. It's chapter thirty, verse eighteen is what I why I said eighteen. But that's really the key part where all the people have come and they there aren't enough priests to purify them according to the law. And yet, because even though they are not pure and not able to do things according to the law, and what is it, what does Paul say in, in Romans? You know, we all fall short. So here everyone's fallen short. And Hezekiah, and, but even though they have fallen short and are impure, they still eat the Passover. And it says, uh, For Hezekiah had prayed over them, saying, May the good Lord pardon everyone who sets his heart to seek God, Yahweh, the God of his fathers, even though not according to the sanctuary's rules of clean, cleanness. And the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. And there you have the perfect expression of what the high priest is supposed to be doing. The high priest, not of Aaron, but of Melchizedek, interceding on behalf of his people before God, and God will heal his people. They are unclean. God sees their hearts and makes them clean. And the high priest is there interceding for them. That's what Christ is doing every day on our behalf. He is going before the Father and he is, he is praying. I mean, he could go before the Father and he could quote Hezekiah, may the good Lord pardon Hoyt, who, you know, or may the good Lord pardon Bubba, who sets his heart to seek God, the Lord, the God of his fathers, even though he is against the rules of cleanliness, clean, cleanness of the holiness of the temple, or even though his heart, even though he is a sinner. You know, what Hezekiah is praying is what Christ is praying before the Father for all believers. And God heals. It's really a beautiful, beautiful thing and just the joy of the revival in, in this, this part of Second Chronicles, it's contagious. I love it. So David has exemplified not just the high priesthood of Melchizedek, but really the king-priest role that Christ is going to play. And the, the rest of the Old Testament has more to say about this. It fleshes it out. We see it in Daniel, the son of man. We see it in... Zechariah uh, chapter 6 with the high priest Joshua where he is in his priestly robes and he is also being given a glorious crown so that the royal authority and the priestly authority are being combined in one person that not coincidentally is named Yeshua which I mean if we didn't know Yeshua is Hebrew Jesus is the Latin form of Yesu which is Greek and, and Yesu is the Greek form of Yeshua, which is Hebrew. Does that make sense? So Yeshua, Joshua, as we say in English, is Jesus' Hebrew name. That's what Jesus, so, you know, Joshua, 
the successor of Moses is the same name as Jesus. Is what I'm trying to say. Same thing. So, okay, so that is a tracing of the development of the priesthood in the Old Testament. And all of that is building towards one thing. What is that one thing? What? Christ. He is the great high priest. All of this is building towards him. And what book of the New Testament really lays this out there? No? Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 5. And really, Hebrews, all three chapters, 7, 8, and 9, are really building the case that Christ is not just the high priest like in the Aaronic order, but he is a greater high priest. He's the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And that this is a, a priesthood that has a, a higher calling and position than just the Aaronic priesthood. And that that was really an insufficient priesthood. Why does it matter that Christ is a priest? Yeah. I mean, that's one of many reasons, but that's a huge one. The priests are supposed to mediate between the nation and God. They're the mediators. God has set them apart to mediate between his people and himself. And so the high priest, Christ is, he is filling that role. He is the one who is mediating and interceding on our behalf before the Father. So it, and we see this, you know, I talked about Hezekiah. There are places where, like at the end of 2 Samuel, where David does this, where, you know, God has afflicted the nation. And David says, you know, God, if it will, you know, if it will satisfy your wrath, me instead of afflicting my people. It's at the very, very, the last thing that happens in, in 2 Samuel. And he's modeling that self-sacrificial love for his people that Christ is going to perfect in his own giving of himself for his people to satisfy God's wrath. So you can look in the notes as far as what is going on in Hebrews. I mean, in, better than my notes, you can just go read Hebrews. So, I mean, my notes are just a pale reflection of, of what's being said in Hebrews. But Hebrews itself is not the only place where we see the recognition of Christ as priest. It's loaded in the gospel. So, and, and, you know, especially Luke and Mark, I mean, they all have these priestly markers. So just his relationship to John. John, you know, John is, is an interesting, John the Baptist. He's, he's, 
his family lineage is from Judah, but also from, he's a Levite. He is from the family, he is, a, he is from the priestly family. So John has an interesting role to play, and a lot of that is a, is a priestly role that he is supposed to be playing. Um, and we see the, the parallels in Christ's birth. You know, when Mary hears from the angel that she's going to be the mother of Jesus, what does she do? What? She does. But she does a very specific thing. We call it the Magnificat. What's that? Yeah, it's the Song of Mary. But is this the first time we've heard this song? It's deeply connected and in fact is something of a paraphrase or a recitation of Hannah's song. Who's Hannah? Samuel's mother. The connections between Hannah's song and Mary's song are very deep. What's the significance of that? Well, one of the things is that God is going to use Samuel, who has a miraculous birth, right? Doesn't he? Hannah, could she have kids? No. So his birth is a miraculous birth. And God is going to use Samuel to do away with the old priestly order and to usher in the coming of the king. What's the old priestly order that Samuel does away with? Well, the priesthood of Eli and his family, they're corrupt. He does away with them. In the same way, is Christ, in a perfect way, going to do away with the old order? And rather than usher in the coming of the king, he is the king. But there are parallels there for a reason. The baptism of Jesus is another priestly marker. So, you know, when you read the Torah, when you read the law, it's very concerned about cleanliness, is it not? And purity and holiness. And the priests are supposed to wash themselves and, and do various things, you know, to make themselves clean. But there's only one washing that they do that is a full immersion of their bodies. What washing is that? The one that inaugurates their priesthood. So when they first become a priest, they are immersed in water. They are baptized, in effect. And at what time in their lives do they begin their priesthood? At what age? 30. says so in numbers. And it's not without significance that Luke makes a note that Jesus was around 30 years old when he was baptized. And that inaugurates his priestly work. These things are not put in the Bible for no reason. It's not just, just for fun or just for, 
you know, chance just because it's you know, that's an interesting factoid. He liked Coke. I don't know. You know, I mean, that's interesting. No, these are put here because God is giving us critical pieces of information. And we just have to do the work to see it in connection with the rest of Scripture. And I'm just, I'm here to tell you, the whole thing, the entire Bible from beginning to end, it all fits. We just have to have the lenses to see it. It's not special knowledge that only we can have. We just have to do the work to see what God has set out there before us to do. So Jesus is inaugurated as a priest at his baptism. And what happens to him immediately after his baptism? And what happens to him there? He's tempted. So now he's a priest. Who is the first priest to be tempted? Adam and Eve. And did they fail? Yeah. Did Jesus fail? No, his priesthood is true. Where they failed in their priestly duties, he will succeed. And it's it's not without significance that, you know, in, in the kenosis in chapter 2 of Philippians, that it says that he did not see equality with God or the Father as something to be grasped. Well, who did see equality with God as something to be grasped? Adam and Eve. What happens if you eat the fruit, the serpent says? You will be what? Like God. So they're in, in Philippians too. I mean, that's looking right back at Adam. But Christ has, does not fail there. And he does not fail in the temptations from the devil. He does not succumb. He is a true priest. And then the rest of his, his ministry is healing, teaching, and offering forgiveness. And it is very clear, especially in Leviticus, that the offering of forgiveness is a is solely a priestly duty. That is only the domain of the priest. So it's 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 with that in mind, with a knowledge of what Leviticus says, that the Pharisees are like, who are you to be offering forgiveness to Jesus? But they're, they're, I mean, you're no Levite. But they're not seeing that he's operating on a priesthood above the Levitical priesthood. He is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. But when we see him offering forgiveness throughout the Gospels, we should say, oh, that's a priestly duty then. When he's healing people, what does he really doing i mean yes he is healing them but what is what is really going on he's making something that is unclean clean who does that the priests if something is is corrupted the priests are the one who are to sanctify it so all those healings that he does 
are really demonstrations of his priestly authority. I mean, there's other things going on too, but that's a significant aspect of it. Does this make sense? See how it all fits together? Okay, well, I'm running out of time. So, uh, okay. So, we're on the third page. So, let's... Let's skip down to section four on the third page. And you can go back and, and all again, all of these notes that I like I'm skipping over, these are just condensed versions of the other notes that I've passed out. So they you can read a little more detail if you go back to the other notes. If you don't have them and want them, let me know. I'll get them to you. If if you want to give me your emails at the end of class, in fact, I can just email you all of the notes from the class if you want. Um, okay, so now we've established Christ as the high priest. Who fills out the rest of God's priesthood? Yeah, we do. We are his priest. So the case is made in several places, but best distilled in 1 Peter 2.5 and then especially in 1 Peter 2.9. So in 2.5 it says, you yourselves as living stones are built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood and to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then just a few moments later, he elaborates and he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own so that you may proclaim the virtues of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that is looking back at Exodus, I think it's 19.6, where God specifically identifies Israel as a, a kingdom of priests. So he's, he is connecting the church now, in this, you know, is, is filling the same role. Let me see here, 19.6. It says... And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. So God is, what, what Israel was to God in the Old Testament, the church is to God now. We are his people. We are his priests. And before this, like in Exodus 4, God calls the whole nation of Israel, you know, his priests. He's, he's telling Pharaoh, I want them to come out of Egypt, and he says, to do what? To serve me. It's the same work, serve and, and keep, that Adam and Eve were to do and the priests are to do. He wants the whole nation to come out and be his priests. And now that whole nation is the church. We are a holy nation and a royal priesthood. What does it mean to be why a royal priesthood? Well, who's the high priest? He's what? He's a king priest. So the priests that serve under the king priest are royal priests. Were the Aaronic priests royal priests? No, they're not. They're just under a, a high priest. But Christ is the king 
He's in the line of David. He will sit on the throne forever, but he is also the high priest of the order of Melchizedek forever. So he is the king priest. So we are a royal priesthood and a holy nation. Okay, but what does it say in... in uh, well, we'll get back to that. So as priests, we are to do all the things that priests do. They approach God. They pray to God for the people. They teach the people. They intercede for people. They make things clean. They, you know, they're to pursue holiness. When we pray to God, we take for granted that we have access to God and that we can pray to him. But in the Old Testament, you had to go to a priest to get that access to God. When we pray now, it's a priestly thing that we're doing. We have access to him as a priest. What does it say in 1 Peter 2.5? It says, what are we to do? To offer spiritual sacrifices. So in the Old Testament, what did the priests do for sacrifices? They offered animals, and, and, and there were also grain offerings and you know things like that. But yeah, they, they were to offer the sacrifices of things of this world. But... God wants us now as his priests, the, the, the sacrifices we are to offer him now are spiritual sacrifices. But he treats them the same way. In Philippians 4.18, Christ at the closing of the letter, he is talking about Epaphroditus bringing to Paul the offering, the money offering that he collected from the, the church in, uh, in Jerusalem or wherever it was. Um, in Philippi. Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm getting myself backwards here. Thank you, Hoyt. Um, for a second, I was thinking he was in Philip. Anyway, you know what I mean. Um, but the giving of that gift to support Paul's work, even though that's a material thing, what does he say? He says, you know, that thing that you, that you sent a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, very pleasing to God. And in the Old Testament, the sacrifices that the priests offer, what, is, what does it say about this, the smell of it? That the aroma was pleasing to God. And it's not that he likes the smell of smoked meat. Lord knows I do. But it's not like God just likes the smell of smoked meat. What it is is that this action, God sees it, and it's like he can revel in the, the submission and the loyalty and the faith that people have in offering the sacrifices. And, the, and that is pleasing to him. And so it's described as an aroma. But, you know, here is, is there an aroma to a bag of money collected in faith and given to Paul? No, it's, it's, it's the same principle, though, that the faithfulness and the obedience that led people to sacrifice animals is the same faithfulness and obedience that leads people to take up a collection and send it to Paul. And the aroma of that is pleasing to God. So as priests now, we are to be doing, making these spiritual sacrifices. 
that should, I think, change how we look at the things we, how we interact with people and how we do things in our daily lives. You know, these things that we do are to be priestly sacrifices that we want to be pleasing to God. You know, we, we should be offering these kinds of sacrifices to him, are we? I'm not, not enough at least. So, and we see it elsewhere in the New Testament where God it talks about spiritual sacrifices and other kinds of sacrifices that are pleasing to God that we are to be making. Why are we to be making these? Because we are a royal priesthood. Does that make sense? Okay. I've got about seven minutes. Do you guys want me to talk about the temple, or do you want to talk, ask questions and offer comments? Sure. I think just about anything does. I mean, as long as we are obedient to God and, and giving of ourselves, I think that would qualify as a spiritual sacrifice. I think the key word there is sacrifice. You know, how is wealth measured in the Old Testament? What? Yeah. You know, Jacob became wealthy because God gave him all the, you know, the spotted lambs or whatever, you know, or, you know, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And yet, what were they supposed to offer up? That which was of value to them. Not that God wanted the monetary value. He wanted the faithfulness. Like, God will provide. Even if I give him the best of things, he is still going to provide for me. Yeah, yeah, all of those things. And I wasn't trying to equate that with money when I was talking about, what I was talking about was value. I mean, we value our pride. You know, we value things like that. So when we, when we humble ourselves, we're giving something of value. So in where it was material in the Old Testament was where I was going. Now it's, what is it now? Spiritual sacrifices. Yeah. Yeah, so these are, it, it's the same principle, but now it's a spiritual nature instead of a physical blood nature. But they still produce the same what? Yeah, it's still pleasing to God. Does that answer your question? Okay.
spiritual sacrifices. Yeah. Yep. So we should, I mean, rejoice in these things, but take them seriously. So, any other questions or comments? If there's not, I'm going to give you five minutes on the temple. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. It, and it's not just that. It's, he's wearing the robes. I mean, he's, you know, where it's very specific who wears that. It's very specific who erects the tabernacle. In Exodus, it spends a lot of time about who is to do what in the construction of the tabernacle. And it ain't anyone from Judah. And yet, like Hoyt's saying, David just does it. But he knows. His communion with God is is deep. He has faith and confidence that he is doing God's will. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And what does he get for it? That's when God makes the Davidic covenant. It, it's in the midst of him doing these things that God promised, makes these really crucial promises. I mean, that's, that's the final kind of winnowing down of who the Messiah is going to be. I mean, you have the promise... You have, the, you have the Noahic covenant, you have the Abrahamic covenant, you have the Mosaic covenant, and then you have the Davidic covenant. It's the last of the big four. Yeah. It does. And you don't hear anything about any resistance to these radical changes to the religious life of, of the people. You know, the, the tabernacle that Moses had made, that's abandoned. It's done. You know, but nobody bats an eye. So, I mean, we read these things, but we don't really think about what a sea change that was. And David does these things. So... Also true, although, you know, we do see, you know, there is, there is record of that, though. I mean, like with, with Athaliah, you know, the high priest Jehoiada resists and he hides the baby Joash to preserve the Davidic line and, and teaches and raises him up faithfully. Or, or even when Elijah's thinking, I'm the only one, what does God say? He says, no, there are yet 7,000 who have not bent the knee to Baal. You know, so there there was resistance. So, but we don't hear any resistance to what David did. Everyone just that is the program. So, okay. Well, if you want to read about the temple, you can read the last couple of pages of the notes. 
and you can then you can I can send you the expanded notes too. Um, what do you got there, Matt? Yeah, I'll just write it down over here. If somebody wants to come up to me after class, if you want me to email you all the notes from the class, I'll you give me your email and I'll send them to you. So, okay. Any last questions? I hope this has been good. Um, it's been good for me to to refocus myself on these things as I've you know prepared to be able to to teach it. Uh, I hope it's been a profit spiritually for everybody up to this point. So maybe someday we can teach the class again. I would like to go over this one again. Or maybe just do eight weeks just on the temple, which would be really fun. So, okay. Any other questions? Then I am going to close this out in prayer. Lord, I thank you that you have given us your word, that we are able to discern so much of who you are, what your plan is, and what your desire for desires for us are. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, the great high priest, that he is interceding even now before you, for us sinners. Who are we that he would lay down so much to do such a thing. Thank you that you love us so much that you would make us a royal priesthood, that we are called to your banner and given the commission of serving you and advancing your kingdom. May we be fruitful, multiply, as the first priests were, that we are to go out and make disciples and multiply them and multiply them, and multiply them. I pray that this discussion that we've had over the last many weeks and months is one that will help focus us as we continue to read your scriptures and continue to learn about you, that it may add new understanding of things that we have known and loved for so long, that in the end that we will be compelled to glorify and worship you. So I thank you that we are your priest and you are our high priest. You are the great shepherd of the sheep. We thank you for this. We praise you for this. We humble ourselves and love you for this. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks, everybody.